you're about to experience a new way to thrive in martial arts by exploring who you are, what you love, and standing up for what you believe in. It's time to rise, because this is where we challenge and say no to outdated industry norms and say yes to change, so that we create a healthier, happier, and thriving martial arts community. I'm your host, Laurine Zuhaken. Welcome to the Rise to Thrive podcast. In today's fifth episode, I have the pleasure of talking to Nettie Boss. Fun fact, I was on her fifth podcast episode on the Empowered Athlete podcast, and now she's on mine. Nettie is a trauma-informed, holistic performance coach for athletes, and she's the owner of Body by Boss. She's an extremely versatile person, being a martial artist, active competitor, mom, model, breathwork facilitator, and a CDR certified logistic dietitian. And it is especially about the last topic that we dive deep into today, namely eating disorders. What is an eating disorder? How can you recognize them on the mats and strategies to approach someone who you suspect might have unhealthy relationships with food? Since Nettie herself struggled with eating disorders, the first part of this podcast is about her story, which made me emotional listening to it. Often I didn't even know what to say or how to say it. So let's hear it. Welcome, Nettie. I'm so glad you're here this time the other way around. So now I get to learn all about you. So please introduce yourself and why and how did you start martial arts and what is your why? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Um, it's nice to have the tables turned. So yeah, a little bit about... Originally, I got into martial arts at seven years old. It was... I grew up in inner city Philadelphia. It was a lot of drugs in the area. Philadelphia itself and Kensington, which is where the little neighborhood I grew up in, is like the opioid center of America. So a lot of drugs. All of my cousins, uncles were either dead were drugs. And so it was just a lot of violence. And my parents got me in martial arts for, as most parents do, for self-defense. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. For me, what it really gave me, which I didn't know until years later as an adult, but it really gave me structure and discipline, um, which is actually, oddly enough, something that I really craved as a child. I didn't really have a lot of boundaries as a child, or structure. It was pure chaos, um, just emotional chaos, but then also just like anything could go. There was just no type of boundary and, chi and children need boundaries to feel safe. And I didn't really have that. So what I didn't realize as an adult, why I was so addicted to Taekwondo, which is what I started in, was because I just, there was just this strict uh, set of schedule and structure and expectation. And I was like, wow, this is like incredible. I really love this. I did other sports and stuff, but from a martial arts standpoint, Taekwondo is where I started um, from a very young age. I would say probably once I got my yellow belt, which I might have been eight, um, I was competing and I would do my biggest events were board breaking, forms or kata and sparring. So that's kind of what I always did growing up. And then like any martial arts, there's always politics with the school and my first school shut down because my pr uh, professor was a beautifully generous man to the point where he gave everything away for free and then literally couldn't pay his bills. So he had to shut down his gym um, so that I transferred to somewhere else. And 
they weren't recognized under the Taekwondo Federation. So I was actually there for quite a while, almost at my black belt, and basically had to restart at green belt once I realized I wasn't being recognized in Korea. So that kind of gave me a sour taste because I was working so hard and I was like, you know what, screw this. <laughs> but then I was like, no, I'm not a quitter. I need to get my black belt. That's always been my goal. Um, so I just signed up with another place to just continue that. And I finally got it uh, way longer than it needed to happen. I should be like a third degree on paper by now, <laughs> but just with the way things work and the way your journey is supposed to go, I'm just a first degree. Um, but then once that happened, I was like, okay, once I got my black belt, I'm kind of done with this political aspect. I got what I wanted out of it. I competed at high levels. I want to be a white belt again and try something new because I started teaching when I was like a brown belt. So I had brown belt, red belt, black belt. So I was always teaching at a very young age before I was 18. So I was like, which is usually the expectation is you get higher ranked. Then I was like, I want to start over again. And so I started jujitsu in 2010. And the biggest thing that's really committed me to jujitsu was when I got into jujitsu, my very first class, I went in with an ego very honest about that. I went in with an ego because I was a high-level competitor. I was a martial artist my whole life. I was very athletic, very fit, even though I was coming out of an eating disorder at that time. Um, I was still generally fit because I would over-exercise and I was an athlete, um, albeit not a healthy one. And um, I just was getting my butt whooped the entire class. And it was really eye-opening to me because I was like, if I am getting my butt whooped, I can't even imagine these other people who don't even have any type of body awareness or <laughs> athleticism. And I was like, this is really scary because Taekwondo is often, as I told you, I signed up for that for a self-defense aspect. But now when I look back, I'm like, holy shit, like, there was no self-defense. Like, that's not reality of self-defense. Jiu-Jitsu is really reality for self-defense. And because of that, I was like, well, I want to sign up. I want to master this. Um, because I think that it will really give people that confidence and myself the confidence if on the street, like that this is actually going to work against an attacker and nobody's really going to square up with me and do a roundhouse kick. So jujitsu was much more practical. So that's a little bit of just how I got into it. And for me, martial arts has always just been like very empowering. Um, I think another thing that's really drawn me to it is like there's this element of like autonomy and control and I think that's what a lot of us crave is like the ability to control something. So like in Taekwondo, I could control my katas. I could control breaking the board. So it was that element um, that something was in my control because in my life, nothing was ever in my control growing up. And so I was like, this is what was so addicting about it. And the same thing with jujitsu, although there's way more unknown factors, like there could be a lot of different reactions. At the end of the day, you can still like expand on your game and learn different things to craft your game. And ultimately, the goal is to kind of be chess, right? So like kind of thinking two steps ahead. But when it comes to my why, I mean, my biggest why is to use martial arts and jujitsu as a vehicle for personal development and growth. Like, I think that has to be my biggest why. Um, there are a lot of subsets within that because with martial arts and jujitsu, it really just like exposes a lot of the things that we need that we didn't know that we needed. It, it's always putting us up against these obstacles and it's testing our resilience. 
um, when we are put up against these obstacles, if we can't get up after falling down, you know, it really speaks to the level of resilience that we have. And it's not to shame you if you feel like you aren't resilient, but just to have this open awareness around like, you simply probably didn't develop any tools for resilience, you know? And I know that was the case for me for a very long time in Blue Belt when I lost my competitions, like I would be debilitated. Like it was ridiculous. Like now that I look back at it, cause like in the grand scheme of life, who cares about a match? Like not changing world hunger. Like it's just a match, but like, I couldn't, like I would just cry and cry for weeks and weeks. And it really spoke to in retrospect, how like low my window of tolerance was for failure. Like any element of failure, like I would crumble, I would be immobilized and just, self-shaming and like all of these things would just start crumbling and it always led me to like why do you still compete if this is how you're going to treat yourself every single time but I was still committed to doing it because like I don't want to be this way in retrospect I realized it was because I didn't develop the inner resilience to come back stronger after you fall down and see that failure is an opportunity for growth and it doesn't mean that you are a bad person or it doesn't mean that you are a flawed or broken person because you failed. So once I switched that belief system, then I was able to see failure differently and able to actually grow because then I was able to utilize that failure to springboard forward. And that's probably my biggest why. That is, wow, that's really a lot to uncover. I didn't know also, of course, where you came from because we never got the chance to talk about that. And I think I think it's amazing like how you still were still so critical also about yourself in a positive sense that you could like, okay, this is what happened. This is how I respond. And that you're like, this is not what I want, but I do want to keep on competing. And I think that on its own shows that the, you know, the willpower was all there, the tools then you acquired along the way. So I think that is very powerful. I mean, basically you're like walking the talk, right? Um, and especially with um, losing a match, it's indeed like when I was younger, I, I did a lot of volleyball and high level and tennis and all that. And um, oh my God, in the beginning, I was such a bad loser. <laughs> but that was also because I thought that losing has a negative impact on my whole being. Like it shows something bad about me as what you also just addressed, but actually it doesn't. It just meant, okay, you can have an off day or I made a mistake or I didn't train hard enough. You know, it can be anything. And I think indeed that once you realize that, okay, sometimes with some matches, you know, also in jiu-jitsu, some match I messed up. Sometimes my opponent was just so good. Like I just got bested. And, and I actually always got inspired from that because I was like, okay, well, if I can get to that level like that is huge so I also really enjoyed like I'm not saying I enjoy losing it's about like how you lose but I I when I get bested really on the technical level I'm like wow that's really inspiring yeah absolutely so then you mentioned eating disorders because you're also a nutritionist can you tell something about how that happened and also probably whether that was the reason why you started to uh, study of course nutrition and our nutrition coach now can you you know, tell us some more feedback and, and, and context about that. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to the eating disorder, there were a lot of factors that I didn't realize until retrospect, right? Because it's a lot of the case. Um, so I'll kind of blend them because my desire to be a dietitian actually stemmed years before having an eating disorder. 
And that was always the pursuit that I had in mind from a very young age. And ultimately, when I was in sixth grade, I was in a social studies class and we read our Gandhi quote, be the change you wish to see in the world. I got it tattooed on my hand and my arm in my own writing because it's literally been my mantra since sixth grade. And so what I realized at that age, we kind of blended into the eating disorder because it's chronological. Um, But at that age, I knew that like health was something that was really important. It was just like this wisdom about like taking care of yourself and the importance of that and how when you take care of yourself, you're going to impact positively the world. And I always knew that from a very young age. And so the long story short of a little bit of the health journey was when I was in sixth grade, I noticed that at first it didn't pay any mind, but I noticed that my jeans were going up in size. I was always a size five. And then just slowly it was creeping up on me that then I I went to the mall one day with my mom and I was a size nine. And something about that beforehand never even cared about sizes. But for some reason that interaction just really triggered me and caused me to want to explore why that happened. Um, Because in my mind, I haven't changed anything. I didn't change my diet, which was terrible. (laughs) It was just like pizza and like not healthy. Um, I didn't change my diet. I always was active because I was an athlete. So nothing changed. And I was so curious is like, if nothing changed, why did this weight increase? So I just like Googled some things of like weight loss and the top tips to help you with weight loss. And I don't recommend half of what I did. (laughs) It's a little, it's stupid myths that people still fall into such as like, don't eat past 6 PM or cut out soda. Um, So I would just follow like six things. And I was like, all right, I want to do this for 30 days. Um, I did that. And then I lost the weight. But that wasn't even why I was obsessed with that. What I noticed in that process was how good I felt. And I noticed this from such a young age. Like I was in sixth grade when I did this. So I noticed from such a young age, like, wow, I feel amazing. Like I have energy. I'm not sluggish after my meals. I used to like take a nap after my meals because they were sluggish and heavy. And I thought that was the normal way you were supposed to respond to eating. I didn't know you were supposed to have energy and feel light and feel like just energetic. So when I had that experience, I was like, wow, I'm obsessed with this. Like everybody needs to know how to eat better because you're just going to feel better. And like, there's just no better feeling than feeling better. Like this is incredible. So I just knew from that age, I was like going to do that. So kind of fast forward a little bit. I was still like always committed to this and um, I was vigorously doing um, Tony Horton workouts and uh, beach body stuff. That was like a huge thing of what I was doing. And when I got into high school is when I went vegetarian. So I want to kind of parallel this with the eating disorder. So the more I started to learn about health, the more I started in retrospect to almost restrict myself and omit certain foods, which I didn't realize at the time was starting to set the foundation for an eating disorder, which is actually very common in women my age at that time. Mm-hmm. In that young mm-hmm. preteen to teenager age, we are really susceptible and higher risk for eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And there's social pressures, um, which is one aspect of what really like triggered my eating disorder on a lot. But this was more of a subconscious thing. I started to like slowly eliminate these things, but with the intention consciously of a health reason. Okay. 
like I was doing it more for ethical reasons, more for health reasons. But subconsciously, there was also this like level of like restriction and control, which I didn't uncover until later. But basically, when I went into high school, I slowly started to strip away before high school meat. So I was fully animal based. And then I cut out red meat first. And then I cut out chicken. Mm -hmm. after watching documentaries and and seeing the ethical practices so that I cut out chicken. Um, And then I was pescatarian for a little bit, but then I realized with the household I grew up in, which is a typical American household, we didn't eat fish. (laughs) We ate steak and like chicken. So I was like, this is stupid. I'm never eating. I literally never ate fish except for fish sticks. And I'm like, it's it's like 50% fish. It's not even real fish. (laughs) So I was like, okay, I'm not going to be pescatarian. I'm just going to go full fledged vegetarian. So I went vegetarian in high school and that was really the foundation for like that eating disorder to breed because with high school also comes the societal expectations, the peer judgment, um, the wanting to fit into crowds. I've never been one to fit into a crowd ever. I've always been this like outlier that would always be able to morph into different friend groups but I never really stayed there. So like I could have seven different friend groups, but like I was more like the person who was like, oh, Natalie, want to hang with us this weekend? I'd hang with them, but then like a different weekend, a different friend group. Like, whereas these friend groups are literally still together to this day. Like they're just like this enmeshment from childhood to adult and like never expand outside that circle. I was kind of influenced by all of that. And at that point I also started to model and that's really what triggered eating disorder. And I was still very much calorie counting. I was Porsche control during high school. I wasn't focusing on quality of food, Mm -hmm. but more so I was just trying to keep myself within 1200 calories, which is already an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, For a growing female body, we need to have way more calories than that. And it needs to actually have nutrients in it. So I would just eat like a pretzel for lunch, right? Because a pretzel is technically vegetarian. Right. But it literally is no calories or like I was fed all this wrong information of how to be vegetarian. And I kind of did what I did because nobody else in my family was vegetarian. Mm -hmm. I just had to figure it out on my own. And then when I got into modeling, it really made me kind of really start dialing in on like Porsche control and the calories. And I started to become really consumed and obsessed with that and would not go over that. I would over exercise I was always using my fitness pal. So if I overcalculated mm-hmm. um, with what I ate, I would then have to quote unquote punish myself through more exercise until I got back into that deficit. That was my life for a very long time. Um, mm-hmm. Seeing those bodies on TV, I used to watch America's Next Top Model all the time, right? Because that was continually feeding and reinforcing that belief that thinner is better, that skinnier mm-hmm. is better. I did not have and still do not have Mm -hmm. the body of the models on that show because I'm five foot two. I'm very muscular. And that's always how I've been my entire life. And they're about five twelve or five eleven and, you know, a fraction of me and very thin. And I was trying to like I would go to extremes and like tell my mom I wanted to break my bones and get stents inserted so I would be taller. Mm-hmm. Totally. Like I was really adamant about that. Like if I didn't need a parent signature because I was that young, I would have gotten it. Like I would literally cry and beg every single day to be taller. And it's just like, just such body dysmorphia, such disconnection to myself and appreciation for myself. Um, mm-hmm. and just wanting to be someone else 
and just look someone else that seemed like they got acceptance and approval. That's kind of what I was going for. And seemed like they were socially accepted in society. And that just really fed that eating disorder. So that's kind of where that came from. And then the last thing I'll say before we check back in is at some point, probably like the end of 11th grade into 12th grade, and like mainly 12th grade, I told you that I had always wanted to be in nutrition from that young age. And I knew that a dietitian was what I wanted to be. I did research as a kid. I was like, I want to be a dietitian when I'm older, like hands down. Mm-hmm. And there's one thing that is really important to me over anything else. And it's integrity. And I talked about this so much on like every podcast episode, because it is literally such an ingrained core value for me. If anything's out of integrity mm-hmm. with what I'm doing to what I am or feeling or saying, like I, I have to rectify it immediately. I cannot move forward out of integrity. So there was this conundrum where I was deep in an eating disorder and yet I wanted to pursue a profession that helped people get better and eat better. And I was like, I can't literally do that unless I heal myself, unless I fix this like whatever I got into, like within myself, like mm-hmm. I didn't realize it, like I didn't expect it to get that far gone. You know, I would have blackout moments where I wouldn't remember going to the toilet and binging and purging. Mm-hmm. I would just wake up like quote unquote, I was awake, but I would just like come to in my consciousness over the toilet. And I was like, I don't even remember walking here. Like, cause it was so ingrained to just binge purge, binge purge. It didn't matter what I ate. Mm-hmm. I had esophageal erosion, I had vertigo, I had hair loss, I had bone loss, I had amenorrhea. And I was also an athlete during this entire time. I did track, I did soccer, I did taekwondo, I did basketball. And I don't know how I survived. (laughs) I did well in all of those things. And I literally don't know how I survived with that kind of being behind closed doors. It was like the secret life I was having. And Mm -hmm. it was really what I learned of not only was it like, to seek this approval and acceptance within myself. But it was also, like I said earlier, a form of control. Mm -hmm. So it was just a way for me to find some level of control because when I went home, there was no control. I was out of control. It was just chaos. So when I could control my food, it made me feel this false sense of safety. Right. I felt like, oh, finally, something's within my control, even if it was at my detriment, even if it was destroying me, feeling in control and that element of safety feels good because that's what we all crave. We want to feel safe. But that was the only way I knew how to feel safe was to utilize and manipulate and control food to create that false sense of safety. And it just eventually led into this really deep eating disorder until I started to get support and help to come out of it. So I was like, I do not, I refuse to become a dietitian and be living with an eating disorder. Like I need to heal this. Like, and that, like you said, that willpower was so strong in me because of the integrity factor. I was like, I, Mm -hmm. no matter how much it hurts, no matter what I have to address, I need to do this for the greater good of everyone else. Because if that's the profession I'm choosing to come in, in my eyes, I had two options, change my profession or fix myself and really fully do that. And so that was kind of what led me to do what I do. And, um, yeah, it's, there's so much to the journey that I had to learn, <laughs> but that's the crux of it, I guess, if, if that answered part of the question. <laughs> no, it does. And I, I also feel like, you know, emotional hearing about it because I think what I love about people, like, like a trait that I love in people is when they kind of can look in the mirror and just really have real talk. 
like also with my traumatic background that they're also when they woke up and was kind of like I refuse to be this person I see right now like not necessarily negative regarding how I looked like but like how I felt like you know in, in, in like the the space I was in and I'm like I refuse that that's what happened to me which wasn't my fault I refuse to let that become the story of my life like you know that was like the main thing like I refuse like and I in that moment I took back control also radical ownership of it like okay it was not my fault but here I am I have PTSD it is my responsibility I have to do something for it and I what I find so inspiring and what I really feel emotional about your story is indeed did you also, so to speak, look in the mirror and you're like, it's hypocritical if I'm going to become a dietitian whilst having an eating disorder myself. And I think that is to also acknowledge that. And I mean, still at a young age, I think is really uh, huge and, um, and powerful. So I have a few questions. So one is like, so what was the moment that you realized that you had an eating disorder? Like, how did that kind of start to be that you were like, wait a minute, I have an eating disorder? That's a really tough question. I, I do have an answer, but it's really tough because when you're in the midst of an eating disorder, you're not yourself. Mm -hmm. You're not operating consciously. You're just out of body. You're not in body. Like you're literally, because everything I was doing for my eating disorder was to escape my body. Everything was trying not to feel what I was feeling, the chaos, the stress, the turmoil, the whatever. And so numbing myself through food and distracting myself through exercise is all forms of escapism. It's all form of escaping the body. So mm -hmm. at some point it almost turns into this like autopilot. So you're not in that moment. Like it's just similar to addiction. 100% I was addicted. Like I was addicted to the feel good in that moment mm -hmm. of that sense of safety, you know? And so with addiction, it's not as easy as just telling somebody just don't drink today. Right. Like, just don't drink today. It's like, it's not that easy. <laughs> like, so uh, there were moments where I would have these hints of awareness, like in the beginning of it, when I was in the deeps of it, like, no, I was full on an eating disorder and had no idea mm -hmm. because I didn't consider an eating disorder. Like I was such in denial about it. I was just in my mind. It was quote unquote, what I had to do in order to stay smaller, in order to lose weight. It was like the next step of what I had to do. There was just no other option. So for me, it was like just part of what was required to get to this goal that I had, which was just be smaller and lose weight. Mm -hmm. So I didn't see it as that. It wasn't until I would say one of the points of awareness was when I went to, I was very secretive about this. Like anyone who looked at me the wrong way where I thought they might've been uh, not judging me, but like questioning, um, like, oh, wow, like you look skinny. Like I would get like anxiety. So I'm like, oh my God, they're going to find out. They're going to find out. Mm -hmm. And that like bred a lot of fear. Mm -hmm. uh, this was the point that I started to open my awareness of like, maybe this isn't healthy. <laughs> um, I was at home and I had eaten and I used to have this routine where I would go up in the bathroom. I would turn the sink on so nobody would hear me. And then I would stick my finger down my throat and I would take out the little plug and just like throw up in the sink or in the bathtub and then clean it all out and then just go down the stairs. And my mom heard me. She heard me throwing up and basically confronted me when I came back downstairs. And she's like, Natalie, I heard you throwing up in the bathroom and kind of just like open that door to be like, 
are you okay? Is everything okay? And I was like, no, like I'm fine. I didn't throw up or anything. And then she kind of let it go that first time. And then there was a couple weeks later that it happened again. And that's when she was like, I, I don't think this is like, I don't, this is not good. Like we need to get you help here. Um, so we went to a doctor and it wasn't until I was in denial still to that point. And I just, I was mainly in denial at that point because I was exposed. Like, even though it was my mom and she loved me and she was, was trying to care for me. Mm-hmm. I was just so, I felt so exposed and so ashamed that I just couldn't admit still to my mom. I was just was like, I can't admit this because I just feel like such a shame. And once we went to the doctor and I got all these tests and I found out all these things, that's what started to open my awareness to like, maybe Natalie, you should stop. And this is when I found out about the erosions and the sores I was getting in my throat from throwing up, the vertigo I was experiencing. I would constantly fall down and get dizzy. And I had low energy. I was also susceptible to getting mono because my immune system was low. So that knocked me out in high school. And then the big ones were like osteopenia and the amenorrhea because I had the female athlete triad syndrome. And my doctor really tried to like hone in on me to say like, you are not going to do well in your life if you start your life with this bone loss and lack of period. Like you're going to become infertile. Your bones are going to break. Like you won't be able to do sports. Like she was trying to get into me as hard as she could to like make these changes. So then that was probably the biggest point of like that awareness. But then what really made the switch for me to actually, because you know, you can't convince people to make change, even if they're killing themselves. Right. And this is something I know, which is why I understand this being a coach in this industry. Like, I know I cannot convince people to change. I really wish that my will for them to change was enough, (laughs) but it's not. They have to have the intrinsic motivator. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the starting points. And then basically the biggest shift that made me put my foot down towards myself and be like, get your shit together was one night I was with my boyfriend at the time and we had this beautiful dinner. It was just a beautiful homemade Italian dinner. Mm-hmm. And I ate it and just like immediately, like five minutes after I finished my last bite, went to the bed, ba- like literally five minutes. I didn't even wait. I wouldn't wait like three hours. Like I was like, it was basically still in my fucking throat. And it was, that's why I got so many erosions because I had still f- whole food in my throat. It wasn't even digested. It was painful as hell always to to get out. Like I was literally just like, I would have to stop and just be like, oh, it was so painful. But like, I would just keep going. So I remember basically walking to the toilet. And like I said, having that non-memory, like I didn't remember walking there. I just remember throwing it up and then sitting over the toilet. And then I was just thinking, like I had this basically rock bottom moment thinking to myself, you just had this beautiful meal. Like you just ruined this meal. You know, you couldn't even enjoy this meal that they just made from scratch with love. And like, you were so eager to just void it and like reject it from your body. And like, what is wrong? Like, this is just so far gone. Like you need help. You need help. And that was like, once I acknowledged that I needed help and like that it was time, that was the, the really the one time where I was like, okay, like I have an eating disorder. Like that was like the first time I actually admitted it to myself. And that took, that was a long time. That was not immediate. So yeah, it was a a road to get there and a lot of convincing, a lot of other people trying to shine the light for me. And I was like, I can't see it yet. It wasn't ready until I saw it myself. 
yeah, that's like, don't know what to say. Like, as you say, like with addiction, like when a person is not ready, like here in the mind and the heart, like they're not going to change. Like I remember somebody saying like, also as a coach, when you want to help somebody who struggles, whether it's with, you know, mental health or eating disorder, whatever it is that they're struggling with, if they don't see step by step that the pain they will go through for transforming for the better, um, when they don't see that that pain is a better pain than the pain by staying where you are right now, they're not going to change. So you need to somehow help them convince themselves that they realize that it is better to get this nil out of you, what you're sitting on, than keeping it in because it is in, it is discomfort. You think you can handle it and you're like, well, you know, but I mean, you're afraid that getting it out is going to be more painful than letting that nil in then they won't change. Yeah, 100%. And I found that so powerful. So the, the Italian meal was that prompted you to get this nail out and was like, I need to change this. And then what I also find very interesting, like um, it's kind of this out of body experience. Like I know that people with trauma, like in general, you just start living in your head. You're not living in your body anymore. And that indeed another side of that is that they can still perform. They don't feel when they're hungry. They don't feel even people who had like severe like tumors or other illnesses that somebody who's living in their body would feel like, whoa, something is wrong with me. Let's go to a doctor. Let's find out what's going on in my body. That they don't even would feel that. But of course, the other side of it is they can perform beyond, beyond. And I think that's also something that people don't often talk about. Like my mom, for instance, she needs to eat every four hours. Otherwise, she starts like shaking and like becomes really, really hangry. Um, but she really would otherwise pass out, right? But she really senses it. And she's like, yeah, I never understand why you, you know, can just skip meals and this sort of thing. And I said, yeah, but that's because for a very long time, I didn't live in my body. And I got my stuff done, like also volleyball, like high level, I did well, right? And I didn't necessarily have like an, an eating disorder. And I think I ate fine, but still, like I wouldn't sense when my body would need rest or when my body would want more food or drink specifically. So I think that is really a big one that when you, the moment you're out of your body, yes, it can be detrimental, but there's also like this advantage, like blessing and a curse that you can still perform. And then my other question, just out of curiosity so you're always muscular did that muscle stay or did it also eventually leave like how because usually you need a lot of proteins how how did that how, how did that go so I was I was always I always had a lot of muscle but I absolutely did lose fat and muscle when I had my eating disorder and so I was always around 125. That's probably where I started. Um, I never weighed myself prior to that gene situation. So once I got down to the weight size, I, I guess I was 125. That's kind of always where I lived. I'm right right now I'm 120, 122. So like literally that is my body's set point of where I was always designed to be. But in my eating disorder, I got down to my lowest of 110, which is really interesting because for my height, 110 is actually considered healthy. Mm -hmm. My height, 100 to 120 is considered a healthy weight due to the equations that we use to, to determine a natural set point. But at 110 is when I was at my lowest eating disorder. Like that was not where my body wanted to sit. I lost a lot of muscle. I was basically just muscle and I, I was muscle and like skin and bone, but I didn't have a lot of muscle. It wasn't until I went to college where I started to actively build muscle and put muscle on. Um, so 100% because I wasn't eating protein. I wasn't eating enough calories. It's impossible to build muscle at up 1200 calories with a growing body. 
with all of the exercise I was doing. Yeah, that's really also one of the things that I realized when I started jujitsu. I was, I mean, it's the metric system. I was weighing like 48 kilo, which I think is also around 110 pounds, I think, because I'm also tiny. But then I also wouldn't eat enough, but especially not protein that there were moments I thought, why am I not more muscular? You know, I train so much. <laughs> like, why? Yeah. So that was for me one of these eye openers. So let's move on and say you're a coach or you are a um, training partner. And maybe also even a competitive school where people make weight a lot, whether it's striking or jiu-jitsu, doesn't matter. Where should we look out for if we want to kind of observe potentially red flags that somebody might have or steer towards an eating disorder? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's very tricky because you might not be with these people around their mealtimes, mm-hmm. right? Like because you're seeing them during class. So um, if you do have team gatherings, I'll start with the, the tangible. If you do have team gatherings, paying attention to reoccurring themes of athletes really eating minimally. Mm-hmm. So if they're just not eating a lot while they're at these events and you're providing food and it's like a food get together with watching the UFC, you know, if they're not really eating, um, there's a lot of reasons because it could be, they could have eaten before. So it's looking for trends more than anything, mm-hmm. how they view food. If you guys go out to a celebratory meal after a tournament, what are they ordering? Are they just ordering like a side salad? Mm-hmm. Um, those are things to consider and look out for. Also, if you pay attention to the opposite, which can be a really hard thing to bring up because there's a lot of shame associated with binging. But binging behaviors are something to really look at as well, because if there's a binge, they most likely are restricting Mm -hmm. um, because that is the effect of a constant restriction. So if there's athletes who are constantly cutting weight or you don't know necessarily what their diet looks like, but you have a celebration and you just happen to notice that, okay, they ate 12 cookies. Mm -hmm. You need to bring that up in a very safe, loving way so that there isn't like shame that is mm-hmm. ignited to be like, oh my God, that person noticed that I ate 12 cookies. Because then that will really just, um, like it did to me, kind of feel exposed. But it's more so coming from a place of like, I really care about you. And um, I noticed that, you know, when it came to, you know, the desserts, you were kind of hanging over there and it seemed like you were, you know, potentially eating a lot. I know that you were cutting for this tournament. You know, how do you feel from your weight cut? You know, maybe just like asking a lot of questions, um, never pointed statements because that makes them shut down and and turn into that trauma response of theirs. So really just questions like, hey, I noticed that you, or if you don't even bring up like the the cookie thing, I think it's better to just be like, I noticed that you were like in this competition, you've been competing back to back for the past couple months. You know, how's your relationship to food been? You know, how are you feeling, you know, coming out of the competition? You know, how's that bounce back been? Um, Really coming from a place of concern and love is really important so that they feel safe to open up Mm -hmm. potentially around that. And if you're able to do it in a way where it might be just a one-to-one setting, Mm -hmm. um, that would be better. Um, Even if it's a safe environment, family environment, people with that type of secrecy um, that they have within themselves, they don't want to be exposed to that level. So I would say like something like that, as well as recognizing just keeping track and trends. So there's always going to be a tendency potentially under eat and over train. So because it might be harder to pinpoint under eating because you're not with the person during mealtimes, pay attention to the trends of constant competition and constant training. Like if somebody's at the gym constantly, 
Mm-hmm. Maybe they're doing two a days, and they, they, they obviously like they're they're doing a lot. It might be something to consider to ask them about how they're feeling again, like with all of that training. Like, are they taking care of themselves on a nutritional standpoint? How are they feeling? Just to kind of ask that and open that door, mm-hmm. um, because chances are they're not. If you're doing two days constantly, most people are under eating because they they're not. They're driving to class, they're coming back, they're driving again, and they're not really prioritizing their meals in between, so they're under eating. So that can be disordered eating. Um, Or if they're competing all the time, which is something I fell into at the beginning of my jiu-jitsu because I started jiu-jitsu when I started college. So even though I healed my eating disorder behavior, um, or I should say I stopped it, um, I immediately subconsciously went right into overtraining. So although I wasn't binging and purging, I went right into overtraining to con- continue to have that element of control. Mm-hmm. So I would overtrain, undereat still, as I was learning to at least not binge or purge. So how I would do that is I would stay, I would compete. Because if I was competing, it gave mm-hmm. me a validation. It gave me a reason to keep controlling my food and exercise. I was like, well, I have this competition coming up. I need to be this way. I literally need to be. So I therefore need to keep myself in this constraint mm-hmm. yeah. in order to compete. But when you're constantly doing that and you're in that, that dieting phase or that control phase, um, you know, that's disordered eating. You know, that's a disordered eating behavior. If you cannot not track and not be competing at something and just sit with a meal and allow yourself to eat it without having negative thoughts about yourself or your body or feeling like you have to weigh or track, or if you cannot do any of that, you have some form of disordered eating. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, 9.5 out of 10 people have some form of disordered eating, which is not an eating disorder. Eating disorder is the clinically classified and diagnosed, but disordered eating, 100%. And the more disordered eating that you have can easily turn into the classified eating disorder. But it's important in this sport to really be aware of the disordered eating signals, which is going to be not eating enough, overtraining, um, skipping. And if you notice language as well about like, oh, I do low carb or um, I don't eat a lot of fats, Mm -hmm. things where it's like food fears, if people are verbalizing food fears, these are things to consider that they might have disordered uh, eating tendency because they're, or calories, you know, like, oh, well, I eat 1200 calories. So it's a difficult conversation to bring up because unless you're with the person constantly, like I said, you don't really know their food behaviors, but you can definitely pay attention to their language of what they're doing around food. And then also pay attention to potentially their body, noticing if they seem tired, if they get sick a lot, if they get injured a lot. These are physical signs that the body's not getting nutrition. Mm-hmm. So again, inquiring in a loving way of just like, Hey, I noticed that you've been sick a lot or you've been getting injured a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm curious because I know the link between nutrition and health. How's your nutrition been? How's your eating habits? And just like open it up like that because they might not know that skipping meals and, you know, they're under eating has been contributing to their, their sickness. So somebody needs to bring that into their awareness. Yeah, I was also really thinking because in our school, we have like many, many teens. It's very funny that in the, our MMA classes, we have like 70% young women. Oh, wow. And 30% guys. So sometimes it was really like one guy. They could do other way around with us. But indeed, I was also really thinking that maybe in spring to really 
just organize some sort of meet and greet also where we just talk about topics like these just from an educational point of view. Because for instance, the last two months, my husband and I, we have been renovating the new location because we changed in a bigger one. And because we were there all the time, I didn't get to cook really because it was we were all the time there. And since I indeed, if I don't have a good rhythm, like then I eat that I kind of like have somebody notifying me like it's now time to eat. I don't really feel it. Yeah. And I noticed that our nutrition was like really shitty because we, we had got all of a sudden loads of takeaways because, yeah, you need to eat something. And even if you try to have it pretty healthy, you still don't know what's in there because it's not homemade. Yeah. And there I already sensed how I, after a few weeks, really felt shit. Simply because it was, you know, it wasn't just your, it wasn't your own rhythm. Um, because I also had, when I was studying from a PhD a lot, that I was just working so hard that even though I ate the same amount, I still gained weight because it was just so irregular that when I got a good rhythm, which was basically the same, then I just, you know, it was, I felt so much better and so much stronger. So also for us, for me too, like I was thinking, even when your life changes, like for us that we just all of a sudden have to really work very hard for two months just to get a new location ready. Yeah. It immediately impacted everything. And um, you could definitely feel that. Of course, now, you know, my husband is sick. I have now my back thing because if I have stress or if I work too much, it's, it's like my weak point is my back. So that much is clear. But indeed, everything pays into it. And so does nutrition. And I think we should, I think a lot is just lack of education. I mean, for me too, when I started jujitsu, I didn't know enough. Like, I didn't realize that I actually need a whole lot more protein, not only to build muscle, but also to keep and to nurture that what I have. And that's really ever since I have now nutrition myself, uh, after I knew I would get the ACL surgery, that I was like, I know I'm going to gain weight, but you can, of course, gain weight healthy. Yeah. And then I learned actually a lot about do's and don'ts, but also indeed many beliefs, you know, that carbs and fats are your friends, right? Like, it's not a bad thing. So yeah, I can see how an eating disorder or disordered eating can really quite quickly even progress into something really bad. And I think we have a few ladies or we had where I was sometimes really thinking like, hmm, you know, no energy in training. And I, I ask, why don't you have energy? And I was like, yeah, I only had breakfast today. Yeah. That I also really like already talked also with her about. I was like, yeah, but you need it. But of course, in her situation, her mother is due to medication and disease is uh, pretty heavy not uh, because she eats too much per se but just because of other health conditions and medication that just make you heavy I could sense you know that she's like so afraid to kind of end up there too so that she thought like the best strategy would be just to skip meals right and, um, and you could see that in her performance too so that we definitely addressed relatively early on that I was like that I said, like, regardless, like, like I said to her, like, I don't even think necessarily that you have an eating disorder, but this is just, in general, you need to eat just to feel, to be able to, to exist, really. So. 100%. And that's very common, you know. So that could be something to consider when, like, working with people is, like, just seeing. There's a lot of reasons why people can be overweight, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But, like, that's very telling to me, like, a red flag for me, for sure, if, Somebody was to say, you know, I fear gaining weight because of my parents are overweight, you know, so therefore mm -hmm. I'm going to restrict my food because that's that belief that eating more food will make me gain weight. And that's not true. If anything, you're going to gain weight by not eating food because your body's going to store fat, your cortisol is going to be high, and it's trying to utilize any energy that you possibly can. Um, 
and it's going to wreak havoc on your metabolism, your performance, all of that stuff. So really addressing that is going to be really important. And um, so paying attention to when people say that, or like if people say, going back to that language thing, if they say like, oh, they fear being fat, or if they do any physical things, like maybe if, if it's females in the locker room or males in the locker room, and you notice like them pinching their skin or like overly looking in the mirror mm-hmm. to the point of like not just looking and tying your gi, but like really like looks like they could be assessing or judging mm-hmm. or picking themselves apart. Um, that's definitely something that I would just speak to. Those are like more signs to look for. No, that's good. That's very helpful because sometimes you just need to know what to look out for. And then usually once it's pointed out, you can see it kind of what you normally would have missed. Then you just see it. Oh, one thing, one other thing I'll say, um, because I didn't mention this one, it's really big, is if somebody's mood is erratically different than how they normally are, their character. So if they start to have mood irritability in class, that's a big one we could potentially notice, like just a change in character, but it's uncharacteristic of them to be acting that way. That could absolutely be a result of being hangry, Mm -hmm. right? That can literally be a result of erratic eating and they just might be hungry, and just not eating, but they're lashing out. So that irritability, mood swings, um, uncontrollable emotions, mm-hmm. these are definitely related to e- inconsistent eating and can be as well. So just something to also look out right. for. I wanted to mention is the mood aspect. Then just out of my curiosity, do you know, I don't know, um, do eating disorders kind of happen between, you know, in all genders kind of equally? Or do women tend to have them more? Or men, like I... So... They absolutely happen to all genders, but 100% females are more susceptible. Okay. Females are more susceptible because we are the ones that are subjected to the beauty standards, Yeah. Um, which most of the beauty standards that we're subjected to are all about being smaller, losing fat. Um, men have more of a body dysmorphia around muscle. So how much muscle mm-hmm. can I build? Right. But women are like, their body dysmorphia is like, how much smaller can I get? And we're subjected to this from magazines and childhood and women. I can't remember the exact percentage, but uh, we're at least two thirds more susceptible. And it increases uh, with decreased age. So general women will be higher risk. But then if you're, you know, in the teenage years, you're going to be of higher risk, even more so. And the highest risk is going to be a female who is vegan or vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Okay, is going to be the highest risk for an eating disorder. So if you notice somebody who is a teenager, and they're saying, Oh, I just started vegetarian diet or vegan diet, they might have good intentions like I did. Maybe you ask them, oh, why'd you do that? Oh, I did it because I want to save the animals and sustainability. And that was all my reason too. It's just worth bringing to their attention the consideration of like, okay, well, you need to learn how to do this right. Because if you do it wrong and you're missing nutrients, this can really affect your health long-term. So just bringing that into their awareness, because I didn't have anybody to teach me that. And I ate completely wrong. (laughs) Yeah, that definitely happened. Like we have indeed a few girls that indeed started to become, you know, vegetarian and leaning towards vegan as well, where I really told them like, because um, I eat everything, um, but I told them like, I don't care as long as you make sure you get all the nutrients you need, because I don't necessarily think it matters so much what kind of diet. I mean, of course, when you have allergies and everything, then of course you have to, yeah. but like, I don't really think that a style is so, uh, matters so much as long as you get like 
the right amounts for you in. Yeah. So I also really told them, I said like, look, especially with protein, with plant-based, you know, you have to be a bit more specific about it because with meat, it's easy or fish, you know, like it's, it's, it's there. You don't necessarily need to think so much about it, but I will definitely keep an eye out a bit more because uh, what you describe, I definitely see happening. So yeah. Amazing. All right. Then I have a, uh, Two more questions. One is like your future stuff. Like what are you busy with, with right now? What are your future plans? And the last one is, of course, your favorite quote. So uh, right now what we have coming up is I'll be running a retreat, which I'll be attending. I'm so excited to meet you in person. Um, our retreat is going to be in April. So that's kind of our big thing. I have a lot of seminars and other camps I'm going to be teaching at the rest of the year, like quite a few. So that's kind of the big thing. I am in the process, which I haven't released officially to the public, but I am in the process of writing a book. That is my goal this year is to really get the foundational book if possible. If it's mm -hmm. not going to be completed, definitely by next year, but at least the bare bones of the book. And it's going to be everything about the performance blueprint, my methodology, and it's going to be in a book format. So the intention is to really be able to spread what I do to as many people as possible um, give people the information, but then also like the actionable steps so that they can do it on their own or just have that book available to them and also be open to all genders because the coaching program is all for females. So it just expands that ability. So that's a huge project I'm working on. And then other than that, we have our performance blueprint, which is our signature program. And this is what, you know, we're really passionate about and that's why I'm writing my book on it. But right now we have uh, enrollment open for April. So we'll be starting that April 2nd. And then we'll have two more cohorts this year, uh, later in the year. So that's kind of the big projects we're working on right now. And we're pretty consistent with what we have, like the, the programs and offerings that we have. There's nothing new uh, that we haven't talked about before. I would say the newest thing that would be down the horizon would be the book as well as we are working on a hit program that's like a 2.0 version. So definitely a little bit more for the advanced athlete who is open to explosion and jumping and doesn't have those limitations to really enhance kind of the transitions for jujitsu. So that's kind of like what we'll be focusing on as well as a new product down the line. And my favorite quote is, I have so many, um, but I'll stick to the one that started my entire journey, as I had mentioned earlier, and that's Gandhi's quote, it's be the change you wish to see in the world. And that one just really hits home for me because what stands out to me about that quote is the word be. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see a change in the world, it starts with how you be. And it starts with the energy that you hold, the intention that you have. And so if that is a quote that resonates with you, it's not about what you're doing. And I think that's what I fell into the belief of when I first loved that quote, I thought it was like, well, if I become a dietitian, being by like helping these people eat healthy, that is how I want to change the world. But what I realized after doing all the inner work was that it actually has nothing to do with what I'm doing. It has everything to do with how I'm being and my actual being. How am I showing up mm -hmm. in my relations with other people? How am I showing up when things get hard? How am I treating myself? That's how we change the world. 
one vibration at a time. The more I elevate myself and heal myself within, that's ultimately what's creating the ripple effect that's going to have a positive impact on the world. So that was a shift that I made because I thought it was the profession that we had is what changed the world. But actually, it's who we are and how we show up and who we are being that actually changes the world. So that's kind of my understanding and the way that I interpret that quote. It's very powerful and I think definitely in line with you know, Indian philosophy and yogic studies where it's also much more about being than all the other things, but it's a whole, whole different um, podcast to dive into, you know. Oh my God, yeah. My my favorite is like being an ancient historian and reading the original texts. I think your, your um, explanation of the quote is very apt. So I thank you very much for your time and also being so open about um, your journey because it's... Uh, You know, I really felt emotional and also like not shocked in a negative way, but just like trying to stand in your shoes and to be like, oh, what would it be like? So and still with all the other stresses of performing, of being an athlete, a model and all that, that's that's a lot. So thank you so much. And um, yeah, in a month, we see each other. Awesome. Yes, my pleasure. It's, you know, I'm definitely in a space where it's my duty to speak about my experience. So in the beginning of this, it wasn't as easy, but now it's like, I have to share my experience to let others know they're not alone and that there also gets to be a light at the end of the tunnel. So it's my pleasure. Thank you, Nettie, for this informative and personal conversation. I have still goosebumps from your story and I'm inspired by you for walking the talk and being a true thought leader. To our listeners, in the show notes, you will find how to get in touch with Nettie and her programs. I myself enrolled in her Hit for BJ workouts and I'm stoked, truly stoked for the 2.0 version. For now, I thank you all and talk soon. <laughs>